Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Good afternoon. My name is Cindy Adams, Madam Adams. I'm the same lady who was in the New York Post Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and have been since Alexander Hamilton founded us. And I wish to bitch about something. I am a New Yorker, born in New York, reared in New York, educated in New York. My parents are from New York. My grandparents emigrated to New York. I live in New York. Even my dogs are Yorkie. The Dutch, who bought us for what gasoline costs now, didn't love New York more. And I, Madam Adams, began in the New York Post back even before the Statue of Liberty moved in. The USA's oldest continually published newspaper yesterday was the New York Post's 221st birthday. It was founded this month by Alexander Hamilton in 1801. There's a point to all that I'm saying. I want to say fie on infidels who wish us ill. Let's don't nobody knock the New York Post. Certainly not some small-time, brand-new, unknown saran wrap called semaphore, or semaphore. It's an infant handout which just knocked us. I don't think we like that. Last weekend, it wrote that the God Bless Us New York Post no longer loves New York enough. Yeah? Down, boy. Statue of Liberty, Freedom Tower, Times Square, Broadway, Madison Square Garden, Central Park, Bronx Zoo, Diamond Center, Wall Street, St. Pat's, Music Hall. I mean, please, don't love New York? We, the New York Post, are the USA's third largest digital brand. We love New York so much, we'd like to see New Yorkers safe when riding the subway. And your saran-wrapped thing... Peas that we focus too much on New York City crime? Lots of luck, pal. And it calls our British-born editor-in-chief who commutes to London a foreigner? Nothing is more New York than the New York Post. It's the biggest metro newsroom, the greatest New York sports coverage, delicious gossip. Loving New York hugely. We don't love New York enough. We're more New York than ever. So to whoever was scribbling this and knocking us, easy, down on the wee-wee pad, pal. Our savvy New York guys figured from what role of bathroom charman comes your so-called private info. 
and how you, who nobody's heard of, wants to build a news up that would last for generations? Yeah, really? Right? Like the Mirror, the Sun, the Journal American, the World Telegram, the Herald Tribune, all of which are in the toilet and we are not. We also know your whoever's held quickie jobs in the assorted small-time weekly newspapers. Great. Keep your references. You may need them for your next interview. I will defend this editor. He comes from Brooklyn, but the man loves New York. He has eaten in every restaurant this side of Guam. He has schlepped his family to see Bear Mountain, which not even a bear's visited since the Ice Age. So fie on cricket and rugby. He's a Yankee Stadium regular. Listen, see the giant newspaper piles each morning wherever you live. See them still there the end of the day with the whole New York Post stack gone. Florida? They're reading us in the hurricane. California? With the morning pills comes their New York Post. Our newspaper has turned from popcorn into a national political force. The New York Post has nearly doubled its profits in 2022. This influential voice grabbed its million users in June 2022. So, to this new Saran rap thing that knocked us, easy boy, relax, calm down. We know the game has hit the biggest greenhouse. We know who you are. We know who your backers are. We know who you small-time writers are. We know who fed you the information. We know. So some of you who may weasel back to try and rehire at the New York Post, take it easy. We know. So now that I have bent my spleen, I am going to go to a little station break. And after that, I'm going to come back and we are going to discuss the history of the first Thanksgiving in the United States of America. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I am now about to speak with Massachusetts Plymouth Patuxet's Deputy Executive Director and Chief Historian Richard Pickering. His title is longer than the interview we're going to do, but he is a historian and he was almost there when the first 
people came for the first Thanksgiving. So I am now about to speak to a great historian. His name is Richard Pickering, and he knows all the answers to the early days of Thanksgiving. He was probably there at the time. So listen, tell me, listen, honey, where and what was the first Thanksgiving? The first Thanksgiving is traditionally identified as happening in Plymouth, Massachusetts in the fall of 1621. And there were 52 English men, women, and children who had survived the first winter after Mayflower landed, and at least 90 Native men with the Sachem Massasoit. And there might even have been more Native people there. We have one written description of the event, and it says... 90 men amongst others. So imagine what the human landscape was like. Probably happened in late September, early October, just after the harvest was in. And it was three days of feasting, of playing sports, and of military demonstrations. Okay, so what did they cook? And they didn't have microwaves. What did they cook on? (laughs) Well, think, think about who was doing the cooking also, because... In the horrific deaths of the first winter, only four adult married women survived. There may have been another nameless um, adult woman. And so they are preparing, probably with the help of teenagers and servants, a feast for three days. Men were sent out fishing. Men were sent out hunting. And we know that there were such resources that in just a few hours, they were able to take enough wildfowl to feed that entire company for one week. So we know there there are duck, there are geese, there are turkey, but the difference between our Thanksgiving and theirs is that the turkey wasn't the central bird at the table. It was just one among many. Anyway, it's lousy, the turkey. Turkey is lousy. So (laughs) how did you learn all this, sitting in your nice little wonderful class? How did you learn all this? Well, actually, I have been working at Plymouth Patuxent Museums for almost 40 years, fresh out of college. And I was one of the historical role players. Back in 1984, I started playing one of the bachelors who lived in early Plymouth. And now that I just turned 62, I'm playing the ruling elder of the church. So I'm playing my own father-in-law from all those decades ago. And part of it is we're a museum that does experimental archaeology, which means we try to recreate the way people lived in the past. And when you do that, you raise new questions about their lives that exist in ways other than just on paper. Okay, so so did they do prayers? I mean, if this is Thanksgiving, and we're all so great about it now, did they do psalms or hymns or prayers? They did, because the... These were a people that rose in the morning with prayer, went to bed with prayer, started and and ended every meal with a grace of some kind. And we even know that when families were arguing, they did it with prayer. They would sit on either side of a table and complain to God. So they weren't making accusations, but you were hearing exactly what the other person thought about you. But how many prayers did they... They had to have a lot of prayers if they only had four women. What are you talking about? Six six women, four? How many women were there? Um, There were 
just the four married women that survived into the fall of 1621. Uh, but they were able to be helped by uh, the teenage girls and by some of the servants that were with them. Listen, did they did they pack a set of dishes on the ship? They were schlepping into a new world across <laughs> months on the ocean, and all of a sudden they were able to make dinner and had knives and forks. How is that possible? Well, these were people that had been married for many years. Many of them were established households in England and in Holland. So they packed up everything that they had. So there's furniture, there are bed linens, table linens, napkins, cups and dishes. But your question is really interesting because there were no forks. Uh, People are eating with knives and spoons. So they're stabbing food in the way that we would lift food to our mouths with forks. Forks in the 1620s are only being used in Europe. They're not an English thing. So you're eating with a spoon, with a knife, and with your hands. And it's the reason napkins were so huge, because people are continually uh, drying their fingers after they lift something. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so tell me exactly, what did they eat? We hear about uh, uh, the food, but what did they eat, if you're the historian? Tell me, at the first Thanksgiving. Well, oftentimes people will ask me about pumpkin pie. And in the 17th century, pumpkin was there, but not in pie, because the wheat did not grow well in Plymouth. And so early on, pumpkin, which is one of the great pillars of the Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. What they were doing is cubing it, cooking it very slowly. And as it cooked down, they'd add more, they'd add more, and then add butter and seasoning to it. So it was almost more like a pudding. Um, pumpkin was there. Wildfowl was there. And in the course of the three days, uh, Sachem Usamequin sent his men out hunting, and they came back with five bucks of venison. So there was deer meat there as well. So they had, how do you make, how did they make fires? Rub, rub sticks together? Seriously. Uh, yep. They brought flints and ferruses. So you would take a flint stone that produces a spark, and you beat it against a little metal handle. And that's catching on either wood shavings or women were making uh, char by putting old broken linen into a frying pan, putting another frying pan over it, and they're charring that linen, and they can then use that to catch flame. Where the hell did you learn all this? Where? Where was all this written? I've, I've studied it. I never heard all this. Where did you find this? There is a book called The English Housewife that was written by a man named Gervais Markham. And it was his account uh, from the 16th century of all of his wives and his mother's practices. So we have these details as to how women were running households. When did America first call for a national Thanksgiving? It 
it begins with President Washington and the earliest presidents, except for Jefferson, declare national days of Thanksgiving. And then it falls out of fashion. And there is an amazing woman by the name of Sarah Josepha Hale. She was the most powerful editor in the early 1800s. She was a New Englander, the daughter of a minister, and she starts this process of petitioning presidents to take up the practice of a national holiday because she felt, as the country was falling apart, if the nation could sit down at the dinner table, maybe civil war could be averted. And the only president who listened to her after 25 years of petition was Abraham Lincoln, who declares Thanksgiving in 1863. Well, which president refused to recognize Thanksgiving? Jefferson did not early on um, because he was for a total separation of church and state. He was the first not to do it. Well, I don't understand who these people were. Give us the history of exactly who this group of people were who had the first feast. Uh, those that came over aboard the Mayflower represented a broad spectrum of the English Protestant experience. So Anglicans, Puritans, and Separatists. The Separatists were the leaders of the project. They wanted to get out of Holland into a place under English rule, but far enough away from the crown they could worship as they wanted because they were very critical of the English church. So you have a mixture of people of different religious positions. But, you know, Miss Adams, I think the suffering of the first winter bound them together in a way we can't imagine today that within three months they had lost half their number Sometimes two and three a day were dying, and we know at the worst there were only five well enough to dress, undress, feed, and bury the dead. And I think those differences were overcome in the kindness that they showed one another. And when that first harvest proved to be really fine and they knew that they would get through the winter, they just wanted to reward themselves for being able to establish a community. What amazes me, their first governor dies after a few months, and within a few days, they have a safe transfer of power to another man. Well, and it should they, happen to us, yeah, okay. It's just amazing that they were very mindful of how you build a community, and they had a minister who... Before they left England, he had sent a letter to be read aloud because he did not go with them. He was going to bring over the weaker members of the church. And he said, you know, the person who most likely takes offense is the one most likely to give offense. And you are going to discover one another's weaknesses as you build this community and be forbearing one of another. And when you choose your leaders, don't look at the gay coat, don't look at the wealth, look at the virtue of the person, whether they are rich or whether they are poor, look at the talent and call them to office. Where did they, where did they live? There, there were no houses. Where, if they came off the ship, what did they do? Where did they live? 
Mayflower had to stay a mile and a half out at sea because it took 13 feet of water so that it wouldn't be grounded. So the men are coming in each day on a small boat, and they are building houses. And we know exactly when they start building. They start on Christmas Day, 1620, because for Puritans and Separatists, the classic Christian calendar was abandoned. They felt it was not biblically based and that there was no place in the Bible where it said December 25th was Christ's birthday. So for them, it was just another work day. And we know December 25th, they started building their houses, and they built one street. They were able to do seven houses. And because the death rate was so high, they made artificial families where all of those that were left alone in the world were brought in, and they lived with those four or five surviving married couples who took in everyone as boarders. Did our natives, our Native Americans, did they join the Thanksgiving feast? They did. And what's amazing, I, I, I love aging and I love having more information. And in the last 10 years, our museum has been working with the University of Massachusetts at Boston on archaeology. And what we have learned is that Native people were living just 10 or 12 feet away from the pilgrims on the other side of the brook. And the exciting thing about that means for 150, 200 years, we've imagined this as pretty much an all-male event. But now it seems that there are Native women and there are Native children who are just coming across the river. So that the first Thanksgiving, from the perspective of the Wampanoag people, the native people of the region, for them, it was being with people they had made a peace treaty with the few months before, because they're pre-literate. They do not get a, a written language until the 1660s. For them, you maintain a treaty by being with that person you have the agreement with. So for them... The first Thanksgiving is not only a feast and a celebration, it's another way to be with those people that they've aligned themselves with in the spring. Why is it just turkeys? I mean, I'm sure nobody had lamb chops or something <laughs> like that running around in the woods, but there weren't always turkeys. Why is it always turkeys, which is, for me, a lousy kind of food? Why is, why is it always, why is it turkeys? <laughs> The the turkey is the central place in the current feast because New Englanders, who really are where the line of the holiday starts, it's New Englanders that create it in the way we experience it today, and they teach it to the rest of the nation as through westward expansion. New Englanders love turkeys. They could be easily hunted, and they could also be raised in the farmyard. So that's why, by the 1800s, the turkey has the primary place at the table. Richard, you were delicious, almost as good as the turkey, which I'm going to ignore and look for a sandwich instead. But thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on and giving us the history of the first Thanksgiving. Thank, thank you, Thank you so much. Happy thank Thanksgiving. You too, sweetie. Bye. Bye. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Now I am going to speak with my longtime friend, one of the world's best chefs, world-class chef. His name is David Burke. 
and I love him, and I have been to his restaurants a thousand times, and I am so pleased to be able to talk with him. So, I am now speaking to David Burke, who's one of the biggest high-class chefs New York or practically any other place has ever had. I would like to first ask you, my friend, about Thanksgiving. Do you know anything about their first meal? About the first Thanksgiving? Yeah. Did they have turkey? Uh, I think they did. I, I can't, I'm not a, a food uh, historian, but I'm pretty sure they had turkey and they certainly had pumpkins and I wouldn't be, uh, and they definitely had corn and they definitely had cranberries because that's all from the Northeast. And I think there was a ton of turkeys back then. If they, uh, if they were, if they landed, if they landed in the Midwest, they would have been eating bison. <laughs> oh my God. Bison. How do you get bison on a plate? Okay. So tell me, <laughs> tell me, we'll go, we're going back to Thanksgiving in a minute, but tell me what's happening with the, the, the concept of tipping. I don't understand. Are we now supposed to not tip or are we supposed to tip? How does it work now in a restaurant, David? Well, that's a, you know, that's a great question. The, the, the non uh, a couple of years ago, the great Danny Meyer tried and a couple other restaurateurs tried to get rid of the tipping and go to the more, uh, the, the European model of uh, service compris. Yeah. And I, some of the better waiters left. Now, so I think it's one of those things where unless everybody's going to do it, it's not going to work. And I think that what has happened in uh, New York City, the minimum wage was raised for wage staff quite quite nicely. And minimum wage is $15 in New York City for dishwasher or any minimum worker. For a waiter, it's $12. Now, the question is, if you're making almost close to minimum wage, why are we tipping 20% when in New Jersey, a waiter makes $3 an hour and he's still only getting 20%. So I think that, that people aren't aware of that. So the wage staff in New York, and they deserve to make good money, don't get me wrong, but good, especially the really good ones. They make a they make probably on average, depending on the restaurants, you know, the restaurants we operate are probably 40 to 50 $60 an hour, if not more in some of the others. So it's not, it, it, it's, it's a great job. Um, so tipping is to ensure prompt service. So it shouldn't be a set amount. It should be the amount you think is proper for the service you got, you know. But, you know, everybody feels an obligation to tip XYZ percent because that's how it's 20% isn't 20% about what it is? 20% it would be the the customary rate of what a waiter would expect and what a diner usually leaves. We 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 kind of track our waiters to see who gets 22% versus who gets 17%. Yeah, yeah. And if you go below 20% we think that maybe you're not giving good service, and if you're above twenty, we 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 give you credit. Right? We okay. we like that. Okay, okay. Now tell me before we go back into Thanksgiving, what is your opinion about the outdoor restaurants, and should we continue them in the bitter winter? We have rats and roaches and all kinds of things. I, uh, I've never been at this. The pandemic came. It was very helpful for many restaurants. We didn't build the outdoor uh, box in our restaurant. We had a bicycle lane put in. We had a bicycle lane put in 
in front of our restaurant in February during the middle of the pandemic. Like, there's a lot of bikers in February. But I, um, I, I don't like the look of it. I think it causes traffic and it fills up all the garages. And I think you're right. I, I think for uh, when the amount of half of the Board of Health gives us inside a restaurant and in the kitchen, I would, I'm shocked that they're not writing something for what's going on out there. And I think they're ugly. It looks, I think it makes New York look ugly. Also, you know, people who live on the street can't go to sleep because there's a noise that's going on all the time. Possibly also there's another problem. You could get hit by a bus while you're out there. There are, but, but the restaurateurs all seem to want to have it. Well, the restaurateurs that can afford to build one and the restaurateurs that have the space. For example, I can't build one because i got a bicycle uh, uh, thing. So it's not fair to me that my neighbor down the street has an extra 50 seats that he doesn't pay rent for, and I can't do the seats. No, I understand. What are you doing? Where are you doing anything Thanksgiving? We're at we're 135 East 62nd David Burke Tavern. That's been open for several years. Um, that's one block from where David Burke Wait a minute. Uh, Give me the address again. What's the address? 135 East 62nd. Okay. And then, Park and, and the name of it? David Burke Tavern. I want to make sure everybody has it. Okay, you're open for Thanksgiving. Is that it? 100%, yes. Okay, okay. Now, and can you check? Also open it. Yes. Go ahead, go. What? we got turkeys to go also, if you go to our website. We're, we're, we're making uh, 50 orders of turkey to go, where you pick it up in the morning, the bird's cooked, and all the sides and the pies and everything else. So it's a one-stop shop. How do you cook this turkey thing? They're, it's always as dry as a bone. How do you cook it? You ask the right guy, I'll tell you. <laughs> I once cooked the turkey in a dishwasher on a Today Show, but I'm not going to complicate things. <laughs> but that's... <laughs> but in the restaurant, in the restaurant, and I did this on the uh, on TV. We t- in the restaurant we bone out the turkey. We take the legs off the turkey because they have to, and we roll, we stuff and roll them up so that we get uniform slices. And we cook the legs separately from the breast because they have to be cooked separately in order for the white meat to remain moist and the dark meat to cook. So we we do the legs and the breast separately. Um, and, uh, you know, we have the bakery in New Jersey, so we bake all the pies for the restaurants for that holiday there. And, you know, we make the cranberry dressing, two different stuffings. I happen to like Thanksgiving. You know, one of, one of the reasons it's hard for chefs to do Thanksgiving is we only get to practice once a year. You know, we don't make, we don't make stuffing in Turkey in, in a fine dining restaurant. But my career started in the River Cafe and Park F Cafe. And then my own restaurant. So I've always been open on holidays. So I've I've made thirty five turkey dinners now. So I'm getting pretty good at it. I've been to a hundred of your restaurants. Every one of them is wonderful. You used to have one on the East Sixties that I went to all the time, and I sort yeah, of miss was, you. I miss you, baby. Yeah. Did you ever have a so you yourself personally? Did you ever have a lousy Thanksgiving when you were a kid? My mom's one of the worst cooks in New Jersey. I love her. <laughs> <laughs> so did you have lousy turkey? <laughs> Listen, I'm, if it wasn't for applesauce, I would have starved to death. <laughs> okay. Tell us how... 
people at home can cook this dry, lousy bird. I'd, r- I'd rather have a lamb chop, for God's sake. But tell me how to yeah, cook well, it. Turkey, here's what you want to do. If you can, you want to take the legs off the carcass and cook them separately and cook them well done. And the breast will cook. The breast, you only have to put in the oven for two, an hour and a half or two hours because the white meat cooks a lot quicker than the dark meat. Now, if you want to have the big bird presentation, what you should do is cook the whole bird on the carcass. And then when the white meat's cooked with a thermometer, about 135, 140, then you want to cut the legs open away from the carcass and butterfly them open and let them cook from the inside out. It's the only way to do it. Otherwise, if you cook the turkey whole, by the time the legs are cooked, the, the white meat is going to be dry. There's no, it's just the anatomy of the turkey is not meant to be cooked whole. you got two different temperature meats. I don't know. This seems to me an, an awful lot of work. That's it. better to be invited than to have to actually I cook. Yeah. <laughs> But but you the next day we're stuck with turkey soup, turkey hash, turkey meatballs, turkey whatever. How much stuff can you make out of this one lousy turkey? Well, the, the, you know you want to you, you figure one and a half pound turkey feeds one person. So you know if you want the leftovers, you get great. I make pancakes and I dice up the turkey and the turkey pancakes. I put it in the batter, yeah, and I make a turkey pancake, and I put the cranberry relish with maple syrup as a sauce, and that's another way to get rid of it. How many turkey sandwiches can you <laughs> Where can you get that? Where can you buy that? Where can you eat that? Oh, it's delicious. you got to go to one of my old cookbooks that's out of print on eBay. And uh, we have we have a couple of, we give you tips on, we call it second-day dishes, not leftovers. Um, you can make soup from the sweet potatoes, you know, uh, and the veggies. You know, you make a frittata or something. But, again, you know, it's one of those lazy weekends after Thursday, Thanksgiving, where you do a lot of picking. And eventually, by Monday, hopefully, your fridge is cleaned out. Okay. Can you want to tell us where are some of your restaurants so we can all go to them? I'm going to go to yeah. your 135 E62 Street very shortly. That is David Burke Tavern. We yeah. have seven restaurants in New Jersey and a bakery in New Jersey. We, we're in Fort Lee, West New York, Morristown, East Brunswick, Rumpson, Seabright, Union Beach, and the bakery's in a, a town called Keensburg, New Jersey, the Dixie Lee Bakery. It's 85 years old. We just bought it. So if you need a pie or anything sweet for the holidays, we're there. Okay, sweetie. I want to thank you. I'm going to hang up. I'm going to introduce you. I'm going to go to your restaurant shortly, and I miss seeing you, hon. I miss seeing you. I'm glad to hear your voice. Happy holidays, and let me know when you come in. I, I will, remember David. talking to you, and the first time I met you when I was in the, my, in the 90s at Park Avenue Cafe. I remember that. Part Listen, sweetie, I was at the first giving back in the 1600s, so you don't have to go far from me. <laughs> Thank you, lovey. Thank you, honey. Okay. Bye. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. 
with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I would like to tell you about our country's number one Thanksgiving and where it was. It was somewhere around Gitche Gumi, or uh, for sure it wasn't off Queens Boulevard, that much I know. America the Beautiful celebrated its first gratitude, hands clasped, chins uplifted, prayers of deliverance to God in the 1600s. It's when we were grateful, appreciative, when our people were thankful blessed, all for one. Before turkey was $1,200 a pound, and stuffing cost less than sending an ungrateful kid to college. For ladies, it was high necklines, knee-length drawers, ankle-length skirts, bonnets, and prayers of deliverance, hymns, alms, psalms, eyes closed, hands clasped, chins uplifted. It was on the knees faces up to God. Happiness. They would say grace, not yo. It was before Eric Adams, if you'll excuse the expression, established City Hall in a gin mill. It was before Joe Biden called Jefferson Tommy. It was before any of us smelled that live turkey named Bragg. But listen... In the immortal words of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what the hell, you can't have everything. We're talking some governor. Back before Zeldin promised a win, he dispatched his platoon to scratch out food. They lacked Christides in those days, and the guys did not come back schlepping Katsimatidis, hot dogs, or even crappy spam. There was not even frozen chicken a la king dinners. Maybe the Iroquois had bagels, but the platoons not. One year, music king Clive Davis went to his aunt, whose husband founded Hebrew National. And Clive said, thank God I'll be able to eat salami. Not everyone loves the holiday menu. Some ungrateful guests probably invited last minute when your rich uncle opted out, they didn't understand why our ancestors didn't throw together lamb chops, pasta, something good. Pilgrims weren't busy with cell phones, street construction, the crown reruns, or Donald's speeches. So all right already with succotash, broccoli, and underdone stuffing. I mean... Why are today's hostesses not serving sunflower seeds at the table, vegan eggs, plant-based veggies, soy milk, organic kale, tofu, and just what everyone loves, they ask. My well-known innate kindness and overwhelming gentility prevents me from mentioning this, so this we won't mention. But an astute, hard-hitting, take-note, prisoners, all-seeing, all-hearing, all-knowing, all-writing reporter, I tell you that worst comes to worst. If even your dog takes one sniff of stuffing and trots away, 
Just climb onto your cheapo city bicycle. Ride down the wrong one-way street. Find a lousy Wendy's and pick it. Some folks bypassed tradition. Diane Sawyer told me once, I throw jalapenos on everything so it all tastes great. Dan Rather said in India, one holiday dinner was lentils. D'Amato, my mother chicked, made chicken soup. Bill Bratton, my wife's mom, made artichokes. One year, Martha Stewart baked 30 pies, and Chrissy Teigen celebrated sobriety. Jimmy Kimmel singed his eyebrows in the oven, and, don't ask, I actually, one Thanksgiving, truly, ended up in Kabul, Afghanistan. Thanksgiving dinner was in our embassy. I was the guest of U.S. Ambassador Henry Byrode. We had chicken. So, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. I will see you again next week, and I love you, and have a happy, 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 safe Thanksgiving. <laughs>